The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is my honor to welcome Dr. Ramon Velazquez. He is an assistant professor in the School of Life Sciences and with the Neurodegenerative Disease Research Center at the Biodesign Institute at Arizona State University. His research interests include identifying novel therapeutic targets for neurodegenerative disorders, such as Alzheimer's disease and Down syndrome. In particular, he focuses on early molecular events that trigger the progression of these diseases. He is also interested in drug discovery and dietary supplementation of B-like vitamins as a way to prevent disease progression. Dr. Velazquez's ultimate goal is to progress science while helping those who suffer from insidious neurodegenerative diseases. Welcome, Dr. Velazquez. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I saw a recent paper that you published, and it grabbed my attention, and I wanted to have you on to talk about it. The title is Glyphosate Infiltrates the Brain and Increases Pro-Inflammatory Cytokine TNF-alpha Implications for Neurodegenerative Disorders. Let's break this down so our listeners can understand. Glyphosate is the active ingredient in a heavily used herbicide called Roundup. It was produced by Monsanto. It's now produced by Bayer. Bayer bought Monsanto. We use so much of this herbicide that it is ubiquitous. There was a recent report from the CDC, research from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, found that 80% of adults have glyphosate in their urine. And I believe you had mentioned in an earlier conversation that 87% of children have it present in their urine. This means that it is circulating throughout our body before it gets to the kidneys. I want to know, how did you become interested in focusing specifically on this particular herbicide? That's a very good question. And to give you the simple answers, we became very interested in looking at glyphosate, given, as you mentioned, the high amount of its use throughout the last couple of decades. The development of these genetically modified organisms has allowed for heavy use of glyphosate. And there's literature out there that shows that in 2012, there was 283.4 million pounds of glyphosate used throughout the United States, which is a very, very high number. There's been a lot of research that has actually looked at the links between glyphosate exposure and cancer. And a paper that actually was published in 2015 highlighted some interesting findings associated with potential brain-related changes with glyphosate exposure. Now, these were correlational data points. So just to clarify, correlation does not mean causation, but we, as neurodegenerative disease researchers and, and brain scientists, were more interested, hey, 
is it possible for this herbicide to get into the brain? No one had really looked at, at this until we actually did. And what was actually that driving force that really allowed us to move forward was given the fact that with collaborators here in Phoenix, Arizona, the Translational Genomics Research Institute, and specifically Dr. Patrick Priorte, he was actually able to detect now glyphosate in tissues. So he was actually able to detect it in brain tissue. So we thought it would be very interesting to see whether glyphosate actually has the ability to cross the blood-brain barrier, which is a barrier that protects the brain from any sort of chemicals, toxins, viruses, pathogens. And if it does, what are some of the changes that occur in the brain? And so that really led to the inception of this study where we looked at dosing mice and seeing whether we can detect glyphosate in the brain. And the answer to that, based off the publication that you just referenced, was that we were able to detect that. So one thing that's important to note here is that we replicated these studies in two different cohorts. And after 14 days of exposure of a variety of different dosages of glyphosate, we found that there is significant levels of glyphosate in the brain. And we also looked at, as you mentioned, TNF-alpha, which is tumor necrosis factor alpha. This is essentially a cytokine that's found in the brain, and it's there to protect. However, when there's a significant amount of injury or pathogenesis or toxicity, it overproduces to the point where it actually leads to death of neurons, which are the cells in the brain that produce behaviors. Those are the types of cells that are allowing me to speak here today. And what we found is that there is a dose-dependent effect with, in terms of TNF-alpha that followed that same trajectory with glyphosate exposure. I have been following Alzheimer's disease. I've written some consumer-friendly articles about it because the rates of Alzheimer's disease are increasing. And from a nutritional standpoint, we talk about having more fruits and vegetables. We want to get more antioxidants in the diet. We want to have less saturated fat. We want to exercise. We want to have social interaction. But I don't think there is enough emphasis or awareness on what is happening in our environment and our toxin exposure and how that overlays perhaps poor diet or sedentary behavior or isolation. So I really appreciate that your lab is looking at this. Yeah, and we're looking at a variety of different environmental factors. And just to clarify a little bit, Alzheimer's disease cases, you know, you're absolutely right. They're increasing. There's more prevalence of them. Today, we have approximately 6 million Americans which are affected. By the year 2050, if we do nothing to slow down the progression of this disorder, we're looking at approximately 14 million Americans affected. So our goal is to really try to understand what ways, what are the strategies in which we can accomplish that. And furthermore, it's known that most of the cases of diagnosed Alzheimer's disease are driven by environmental factors. So there are cases of individuals who have Alzheimer's disease that have it due to a genetic mutation or it's familial, but that's less than 5% of those affected with the disorder. What does that suggest? And to your point, that most of the driving factors are in fact environmental. Right. Well, and if you look at populations that are more heavily exposed to herbicides, specifically farm workers, farmers, people living in certain parts of the country where this herbicide is increasingly sprayed, you know, as weeds develop resistance, 
more of the herbicide is used, and then layer on top, in addition to glyphosate, or what is commonly known as Roundup, now we have additional genetically engineered crops that are able to withstand the spraying of glyphosate plus 2,4-D and dicamba. So sometimes I wonder about just looking at one particular herbicide without looking at all of the other factors that probably have synergistic effects. Would you think? Yes, I 100% agree with that. And we've actually spoken to toxicologists in our center about other potential uh, components in these, like I mentioned, Roundup and these herbicidal products. And yes, I think that while we're trying to shed light on whether glyphosate can produce these effects in the brain, there's also other potential components of these products that may synergize and produce an exacerbated effect. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. All right. So tell me more about this particular tumor necrosis factor alpha. Tell me more about why you chose to look at that particular compound and how it behaves in the brain, if you would. Yeah, that's a great question. So we specifically looked at TNF-alpha. As I mentioned, it's a cytokine. You find it throughout the entire body, not just the brain. And we went through the literature and following all the scientific literature that's out there in regards to glyphosate exposure, there's actually evidence that glyphosate induces TNF-alpha expression in the periphery. And as I mentioned, these neuroinflammatory or these uh, inflammatory cytokines can actually damage tissue. And it's known that if they're elevated, that typically is associated with pathologies in your body and various organs. So that led us then to ask the question, well, if glyphosate is present in the brain, what is essentially going on with this neuroinflammatory response? Is it there? Do we see TNF-alpha there? We've also focused on TNF-alpha in the brain because you see it not only in individuals that have Alzheimer's disease, but you see it in a whole host of neurodegenerative disorders, so other disorders of the brain. And TNF-alpha has been this link that has been established, and there's actually clinical trials on TNF-alpha inhibitors to try to reduce TNF-alpha in the brain. So we thought it would be a perfect candidate to see, well, is it possible that glyphosate in the brain is actually increasing this TNF-alpha? And it actually, you know, as we found, it is in our study. Now, what does TNF-alpha do in the brain? Well, as I mentioned, it's protective if there's small injury to the brain or there's pathogenesis in the brain. But if it's, that injury is substantial, there's various toxins in there, it begins to accumulate. And what it does is trigger signaling pathways in the brain, specifically in neurons. As I mentioned, these are the cells in the brain that allow us to produce our behaviors, speak, produce learning and memory, etc. It actually has the ability to trigger signaling pathways that leads to neuronal death. So those neurons actually have the ability to die. So what we're doing next in our study, since we found that TNF-alpha was elevated, is we're looking at whether neurons are actually dying. And why this is important is because the brain does not develop new neurons. So once the neurons are developed and they're injured and they die, they typically don't develop again. So that could have very, very consequential effects on the behavior of the individual. Wow. So in addition to Alzheimer's disease, we're looking at Parkinson's disease rates among farm workers. We know that there are higher rates among farmers who work with specific chemicals. We're also very concerned about rising rates of autism in the community. Again, this is a neuro function. What are your thoughts with regard to 
how glyphosate might be impacting children's brains, especially in light of the CDC report that found that 87% of children were found with glyphosate in their urine. Right. Yeah, it's a very important question. There is scientific literature that actually shows that exposure of glyphosate to the mothers can have neurotube defects, so effects that ultimately you will see in the offspring and the children. So there is evidence out there of that actually occurring. And there's been a a whole host of experiments done in that realm of research for quite some time. Now, in terms of inducing or causing autism, I think we need more research in order to be able to make that link, whether glyphosate is able to induce autism. But it is in the scientific literature, it is known that glyphosate exposure does, in fact, can produce deficits, yes. Well, the fact that your lab has discovered that glyphosate can infiltrate the brain, cross the blood-brain barrier, and result in inflammation linked to neurodegenerative disorders, I think is extremely important. I know that there are recommendations, and we've seen some literature looking at those who choose organic food. And we know that in the organic farming systems, glyphosate is not allowed. I will say, though, that in the Midwest, where I live, we have glyphosate in our rainwater. That's how prolific the use is and how the water cycle works. Right, right. Yeah, and to that point, you know, I was actually speaking to a colleague of mine yesterday after I gave a presentation on this data here at Arizona State University, and he's a toxicologist, actually, so we have common interests in this area. And he was sharing a piece of data that came out that showed that here in Arizona, there was the usage of glyphosate in a field that was just used to remove weeds. There would be building of homes and communities for individuals and for people that bought their homes in that area. And he pointed to the fact, well, this is concerning because not only are there implications for, you know, the consumer that buys these products where glyphosate is, is sprayed in the fields, but you're spraying it in these patches of land to remove weed, and it might be there, right? Because one of the things about glyphosate that's known, it's, it's actually pretty hard to get rid of. So one of the concerns is, well, what are the implications, one, for those that will live there, and two, also, what are the implications for the wildlife that lives there, for fish and for other creatures that live in those environments. And I think those are also very important to keep in mind as well. Right. Let me take one break, Dr. Velazquez, because we are halfway through. And I want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Ramon Velazquez. He is an assistant professor in the School of Life Sciences, with the Neurodegenerative Disease Research Center at the Biodesign Institute at Arizona State University. And he has recently published an excellent paper. I will provide a link to that. Its title is Glyphosate Infiltrates the Brain and Increases Pro-Inflammatory Cytokine TNF-alpha Implications for Neurodegenerative Disorders. Dr. Velazquez, I know that you have also looked at other factors that influence brain health, and I think that they would be worthy of mention. So you have looked at B vitamins, you have specifically looked at specific herbs, you've looked at mushrooms, lion's mane in particular, you've looked at choline, which is found in liver, egg yolks, and red meat. Tell me how these nutrients influence brain health. 
Yes, that's a very important question. It's something that I've I've actually been studying since I was a graduate student in Ithaca, New York at Cornell University under my advisor, uh, Dr. Uh, Barbara Strupp, who actually uh, played a big role in identifying the importance of choline supplementation in, in a way to ameliorate some of the deficits that you see in Down syndrome, this neurodevelopmental disorder where those that are affected by the fifth decade of life actually also develop Alzheimer's disease. And really what we found with this work is that supplementing above the levels that's recommended by the Institute of Medicine, so they in 1998 set guidelines of the amount of choline, which is this B-like vitamin that plays very important roles in the body and in the brain, they set the standards based on healthy liver function in men. And those levels were set at 425 milligrams a day for women, 550 milligrams per day for men, and then 550 milligrams per day for pregnant women because there's evidence that choline is necessary for fetal development. What our research has actually shown in the last 10 years is that those numbers might be underrepresented. So we actually need more choline in order to be able to produce the benefits and the brain-related functions that are important for healthy cognition and healthy brain-related function. So we have found that if you supplement the diet by 4.5 times the recommended daily intake amount, and this is in rodent models, so mice models, you actually find a reduction in Alzheimer's disease-like pathologies later down in the life of the mouse, and you also rescue cognitive deficits and also some of the pathologies that you see in the disorder, including neuroinflammation that's actually been shown with choline supplementation. So I think this is very important, and our really recent research, which is actually currently under review, but there is a preprint out in what's called bioarchives, where you can submit these documents before they are released by a journal. We actually conducted a study where we had mice, and we either put them on a normal choline diet based on recommendations by the Institute of Medicine, or we just simply removed the choline from their diet. And we put them on from early adulthood all the way to late adulthood. And what we found, which is very fascinating to us, is that the choline deficiency played substantial roles in various physiological functions in the body and in the brain. So, for example, we found that mice had a significant increase in weight. So weight regulation was affected by choline. We also found that glucose metabolism, which is obviously tied to disorders like diabetes, was also dysregulated if you didn't have choline in your diet. We found liver pathology, so fatty liver disease, was induced by a choline-deficient diet. We found cardiovascular issues as well. And also, if you look in the brain, we found that there was an exacerbation of pathologies associated with Alzheimer's disease. So what this is really highlighting is that Choline is necessary to prevent these ailments tied to many of these disorders, but also that even the levels that are recommended might not be optimal for a superior cognitive and body and brain related function. This is fascinating. So just to clarify, our bodies need choline to produce yes. acetylcholine, and that this compound is a neurotransmitter that plays an important role in functions like memory and muscle movement, even maintaining Correct. your heartbeat and your mood. So just to understand why we need this particular compound and where it's found in the body, when I first started reading about the importance of choline, I had to laugh because for so many years, we've been telling people, you know, don't eat egg yolks, 
They're high in cholesterol. Oh my goodness. And then you find out, oh, choline is also required to clear cholesterol from your liver. So whole eggs are a healthy part of a diet in particular because they are one of the richest sources of choline in addition to beef liver. And honestly, I tell people to be very careful about eating beef liver because if you're getting beef liver from an animal that has been raised in an industrial fashion and has received hormones and antibiotics, we know that the liver is the big detoxifying organ. If you're going to eat liver, make sure you're getting it from an animal. I would recommend that's 100% grass-fed and has not received any medications. Yes, absolutely agree. And I think you hit a very important point when you talked about the functions of choline. So you talked about acetylcholine. But there's actually a, a whole host of other functions that we have identified which are very important. And one of them that I think is very, very critically important to mention is that choline is what's called methyl donor. So essentially what it does, it has the ability to alter these mechanisms that can actually alter gene expression. So it's necessary in order for these genes to be expressed that then produce these proteins that are vital for specific functions. And it also builds the cell membranes that are part of cells, which is also very, very important. So it has a variety of different roles on top of producing acetylcholine, yes. Would there be any negative effects of taking a larger dose of choline than what is typically recommended by the Academy of Sciences? That is a great question, and we get that question a lot. The current literature suggests that you would need to take about 3.5 grams of choline per day to, or over that in order to show any form of toxicity. And the toxic effects of that would be essentially low blood pressure. And then the metabolite of choline has a fishy odor to it. So those are the side effects that are known. However, that level is probably about eight times the amount of the recommended daily intake. And we, with our studies, have actually shown that 4.5 times the amount is sufficient to produce all these whole host of benefits. So in other words... There are some potential toxic effects, but it would have to be really a large amount of choline to, to uh, reach those toxic effects. And also, I just want to know, because I think this is critically important, so there's been work done at Cornell University that's actually looked at the effects of choline supplementation in pregnant women and have actually followed the offspring for now about seven to eight years old. And they've only supplemented by two times the amount of the recommendation. So it's a publication in a journal called FASEP that was published a few years ago. And what they found is that those offspring with just two times the supplemented amount of choline, which the mothers took, actually are meeting all the milestones in terms of development much faster than those individuals that took a normal choline diet. This is fabulous. Yeah. This is so such yeah. important research. I wanted to ask you about your research methods because I'm sure that people will say, well, you know, you're doing research on rodents and can we extrapolate to humans? How do you respond to that kind of concern? Yeah, so I, I mean, it's a concern that we get. And it really, in terms of questions and what you're asking, sometimes you're limited. So let me give you one example with the glyphosate experiment. You know, it would be unethical for us to say we're going to go do this in humans and dose humans with these with dosages of glyphosate to look at the toxic effects. So we have to essentially do this in mice and see what the effects are, and then we can extrapolate the data there based off, you know, there are corrections and pharmacological recommendations when you look at dosages in mice that pertain to humans. And then with the choline supplementation, 
That is a concern we get. However, there's follow-up studies in humans that have actually been done, as I mentioned, the one in Cornell with my former advisor and a colleague of hers there, that have actually done some of this in humans and have found benefits. So the way that I typically answer that question is to say, well, the mouse work is essentially a stepping stone to the next, to humans, or we have to extrapolate with some caution what this means for humans based off the fact that we are using mice. But it's pretty standard to use these types of models in this area of research where you use these rodent models, experimental models, and then extrapolate to humans. Well, I think it's really important to explain why research is done on mice and what we can think in terms of how that might be impacting humans. We're just higher up on the food chain. We are, in effect, in a grand experiment because we are being exposed to such high levels of glyphosate now for it to show up in our urine like this. So in a way, we're all being experimented on. And if you look at the rates of neurodegenerative diseases and the fact that they're increasing over time, I think we'd be foolish not to be at least practicing the precautionary principle. Yeah, and I think to your point, that's why we got involved, because we want to highlight there's correlational data out there, right? And as I mentioned, correlation does not mean causation. We all know that in the scientific field, and it's, it's pretty well known in the general public. So we want to shed more light on whether there are potential links. That's why we're moving forward with all these studies, and that's really our driving force. Because if you look at the actual experimental evidence tied to glyphosate exposure, for example, and the impacts it has on the brain, there really isn't much. There isn't really much out there. So we are trying to get at that question, given that the usage of glyphosate has just gone up exponentially in the last couple of decades because of these modifications of these crops. Right. And residues have been allowed to increase on the foods that we eat, which is also a concern of mine. We just have a minute left do you have anything that you want to bring forth from your years of research or this particular paper? Yes. So what I think that definitely I want the public to know is that there's a lot of evidence out there suggesting potential correlation with brain diseases and the use of these environmental pesticides. Our goal as neurogenerative disease researchers is to look at whether there's potential links, and we're doing that. We haven't made that connection 100% yet, but it is our duty as, as scientists that study neurogenerative diseases, brain, the brain, basic science, to try to essentially produce more research and scientific findings that shows whether there is a link between glyphosate exposure and these neurodegenerative disorders. And I also want to throw in an, an additional comment, and that has to do with the research on specifically glyphosate. But when we look in the field or we go to the hardware store and we pick up a bottle of Roundup, glyphosate is combined with what are called inert ingredients. And it's my understanding that those inert ingredients make it easier for the toxin, for the glyphosate, to enter into the cell. Are you considering that at all also in your research? That is something that our toxicology collaborator actually has brought to our attention, and we're collaborating to look into that as well. So I think what this has led us to, it's just opened the door to the potential of many other questions that we now have. And our goal is to interrogate those questions and essentially produce this research that we can share with the public and make them aware of what we're finding. Well, 
I want to thank you so much for this incredible research. We've got to close, so I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Ramon Velazquez. He is the author of an incredibly important paper titled Glyphosate Infiltrates the Brain and Increases Pro-Inflammatory Cytokine TNF-Alpha, Implications for Neurodegenerative Disorders. Thank you for your time today and for your critically important research. Thank you very much for having me.